This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Well, wait a second. Whose voice is that that started that? that Jared, did you get a deeper baritone, or what happened? He didn't. He didn't, actually. Yeah, who are you? Jared is on vacation, and I snuck into the studio, and I don't even know what I'm doing here. No. Jared is on vacation. He's taking some time soaking in, like, mineral baths or... Uh-huh. Uh, you know, lying out in the sun. I'm not sure. But I can envision it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a well-deserved break. And I... What's your name? I should introduce myself. My name is Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Um, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've been uh, working with Wisecrack for, I think, about four years now. Um, on the content side, mostly uh, what I've done is Earthling Cinemas. So I write the analysis for all the Earthling Cinemas. Including the Earthling Cinema for this. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Love that show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan, the editor from that show. I, hey. lo- I love it as well. Get him for me. So many, I don't get to do... How many applauses are you going to do, Ryan? Well, you know, as, <laughs> as many, many as, as are it, warranted. As many as it takes. In Kevin's intro. <laughs> that works. Continue, Kevin. So I don't get to do a lot on the content side anymore, but um, when I heard that we needed somebody to step in for the Show Me the Meaning on this particular film, I raised my hand because I love this movie. Oh, hell um, yeah. You wrote the Earthling Cinema Analysis for this movie. I did, yes. Go so, check that out episode out. Yep. I was definitely ready to refresh and watch the movie again. So we are talking about Spirited Away today, uh, the Miyazaki film. Um, oh, hell yeah. Why don't we start by talking about, uh, you know, our, just some general thoughts about the movie. What would you think the first time you saw it uh, on rewatch? What's your experience? Well... Um, hi, my name is Ryan. I'm the editor of at Wise and, and Ryan is wearing a squid what up, film head fans? hat thing. <laughs> oh yeah! If you if you're if you're only listening, I'm 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 all decked out in my Miyazaki motif gear. So I have my I have my pig barbecue apron on, you know, symbolizing the parents who get turned into p- gross pigs in the movie, yep. and then my Ponyo inspired um, <laughs> squid hat, yeah. that I'd call it. Um, so anyway, I love Miyazaki, if you can't tell. But, uh, so this movie, the first time I saw it, saw it in high school, or uh, pretty soon after it came out, and it it, it definitely blew my mind. It was the, the very first anime, you call this anime, right? This yeah, is anime? I think so. Yeah, so, so yeah, that, I, that I'd ever seen, and I was like, yeah, okay, I can see why people are into this. But then I went and saw other, watched other anime, and I re- it's really, this one's, to me exceptionally magical and different than 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 others and yeah Miyazaki's just an imagination genius this mm. movie uh, uh i don't know how you'd think of it like and especially that it's hand-drawn it's so impressive obviously i'm excited yeah. to talk about all the themes about how people are just inherently greedy and yeah. it's kind of a uh how money can buy you anything unfortunately and basically how it's kind of i love how that it's a kids movie that's kind of anti-parent in a way. Mm. Not saying I'm anti-parent, but I'm just I mean, you know, I was when I was a kid, everyone sure. was. But that that's what's so cool about this movie is that is that, you know, it, it really is a, from a kid's perspective. Four kids by kids, even though it was made by like a 60-year-old man. <laughs> but uh uh yeah, I really love this movie. Let's Absolutely. go. Absolutely. Austin, what'd you think? Yeah, so I am way late to the game on Studio Ghibli and anime. I had a good buddy when I was an undergrad that was, I guess you could call him a Japanophile. Um, what's it, is it Otaku? Otoku? Is that the name of the culture? Like 
the, the people that are really into Japanese. I can tell Uh-oh. you. Uh-oh. Is that what it's called? We don't know. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, I think Japan it is. Japanophile works. So he was, he yeah, was we'll really go with I'm one of those. It, and he would talk about it. And he writes comics and things like that uh, professionally and has made some films and whatnot. And and so he would talk about it all the time. And I and I never got into it until I, uh, w- I saw The Red Turtle, which was actually the first Studio Ooh. Ghibli film that I saw, which is not a Miyazaki film. But it's the first Studio Ghibli film that I'd actually seen, which is just, you know, two years ago now. And I thought mm-hmm. it was magical. And so I went then and I was like, okay, I got to go through Miyazaki's filmography. And this is the one that everybody talks about, but it wasn't the first one that I saw. The first one I saw was Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro. And uh, then after that, I kind of just devoured all the films. And then I actually helped produce the Wisecrack uh, edition on the philosophy of Miyazaki's video. And Great so then episode. I did a deep dive into the film. And I just think that this film is so fascinating. It, Like you guys have said, there are some interesting themes about greed and consumption, about like the, the wisdom of children, which is something that cuts through all of Miyazaki's films. And then I think there's something really beautiful about the spiritual themes interconnecting nature with culture and not becoming so caught up in maybe technology or the things that are human, but trying to have an appreciation for deeper realities that are maybe we might say behind the veil, right? And so I think there's something so fascinating about how this film is so, maybe even more than the other films because it's kind of batshit crazy because there's that that bathhouse and all those weird creatures and animals and spirits and things like that. It's more frenetic and eccentric than the majority of his films, which are a little bit sometimes stripped back and simple. And and I like them all, but there's something crazy about this film that I think is really quite appealing. I think they're all pretty crazy in their own way. Personally, I mean, yeah, Princess Mononoke, dude. I mean, that's like well, that one's crazy. violent. Yeah, yeah. that one's crazy. Movie, but right? I mean, like Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Neighbor Totoro, uh, Ponyo. There, there's a wildness to them. But for some reason, when I watched this, I was just like, "Whoa, dude, you're this batshit." You know? I yeah, think that's I mean, uh, right. P- Ponyo yeah. is definitely tamer than this movie, and sa- same with Totoro. But I definitely think that the just the attention to detail that's the big thing i hopefully talk about too just about his filmmaking like he just these little things in life just how like paper will fold in weird ways Mm -hmm. you never see it really illustrated in movies like i would say that just how he focuses on those things in each of his movies those tamer ones and the really batshit insane ones really makes a kind of a surreal but like human quality that transcends cinema baby it does yeah yeah what about you kevin what about well experiences you know like I said, I, I wrote The Earthling Cinema on this, but my I think I saw this movie right when it came out in the theaters because I was already anticipating Miyazaki's films by then. I think the first one I saw was Nausicaa. They did uh, they found like a, an old print of it and they screened it on the big screen at, uh, at Berkeley where I was at school at the time. And uh, I saw it. It was the, my first exposure, I think, to any anime. And uh, it was just intense. It blew me away. That movie is like really emotional and beautiful. Like I've strong. not seen Nausicaa. It's a good one. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a set of graphic novels that are amazing as well. So I was waiting for it, and I was not disappointed. From the beginning of the film, um, just it, it really gets straight into this magical world. And I love love movies that take you away. Like I, I love movies that are set in like spirit realms. You like Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland? Like as, absolutely, as Earthling Cinema yeah. episode talks about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. James Franco's exactly. Wizard of Oz and Johnny Depp's <laughs> Alice in yeah, Wonderland. Right. Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, <laughs> um, but even those versions, I can you know I can always get behind a movie that takes me away. 
So, and this movie absolutely did. Did you get spirited away when you watched I, this film? I think that's, Holy I think that's fair to say. Okay. <laughs> I knew something was coming. Um, I'm worried that no one is pushing that applause button when Ryan talks, but we'll have to get into that later. Um, Go me. Bravo. Um, so really excited to get into these themes. And I think the first thing we should do, what we usually do on this show, my understanding, is we do a recap. So I'm going to get into that now. Cool. Good job. You've watched an episode before. I, I have. I have. I am a fan. Oh, uh, hey, thank you. Uh, so in the beginning of the movie, we meet a young girl named Chihiro and her parents. At this point in the film, Chihiro's kind of a brat. And right now she's sulking because the family's moving to a new town and, quote, it's going to stink. So while driving to the new home, the family gets lost and they wind up in front of a strange deserted building with this creepy statue in front of it. Against Chihiro's objections, they explore and the father realizes that it's an abandoned theme park. He notes that there are a bunch of these in Japan that were built during boom times and abandoned when the economy crashed. That's going to be important later. So they come across an enormous buffet that's piled high with this amazing, delicious-looking food. The parents rip into it with gluttonous abandon, but Shihiro does not partake. She wanders off and meets a strange boy who we later learn is named Haku. He warns her to get away before it gets dark. Shihiro runs back and finds that her parents have transformed into giant hogs. As it starts to get dark, the buildings light up and now Chihiro is freaking out because all these spirits are starting to appear and, and move around and there's a strange barge that moves across a river that wasn't there a minute ago. She meets Haku again and he gives her some local food to keep her from disappearing and helps her dodge this huge bird thing that's looking for her. We later learn that's Yubaba. Haku tells her to go down to the boiler room of this bathhouse and demand a job or else Yubaba's going to transform her into an animal. In the boiler room, she meets this many-armed man, Kamaji, and a bunch of little soot balls feeding a massive furnace. Kamaji sends Chihiro to Yubaba to appeal for a job. Yubaba is this old woman with an enormous head, an enormous baby, and a bunch of magical aspects about her. She can fly, she's got a little bird version of herself, and she's got three little heads that bounce around and mutter around her. Um... At first, Yubaba refuses to give her a job, but then reluctantly concedes because, unfortunately, she took an oath to give a job to anybody who asks. Yubaba renames Chihiro Sen. Haku takes Sen to see her parents in the pigsty. At this point, we don't really know what to make of Haku because, on one hand, he's been helping Sen, and yet we hear other characters say things like, Haku is Yubaba's henchman. Um, Haku tells Sen that she has to remember who her parents are and to remember her own name because stealing your name is the way Yubaba controls people, including Haku himself. Around this time, we see No Face show up. He is the spirit with the black cloak and that uh, very plain oval white mask. So Sen starts to get in the swing of her job at the bathhouse. A sludgy creature shows up for a bath, and Sen takes on the tough task of serving him. He turns out to be a river spirit after Sen unplugs a bunch of garbage that was stuck in him. He rewards her with this nondescript brown ball that's going to become very useful later, and Yubaba's happy because the spirit left a whole bunch of gold behind. No-Face witnesses the scramble for gold and starts generating it himself. He orders a bunch of food, and the entire bathhouse comes alive with greed. Starts feeding No-Face, bringing him more food, um, more uh, just serving him hand and foot in the hopes of getting more gold. No-Face starts to get bigger and bigger and more grotesque, and everyone just keeps feeding him, except Sen. Uh, Sen doesn't want the gold, and she leaves. No-Face gets enraged and starts eating employees which is a huge HR violation, if I ever heard one. <laughs> Concurrently with this, 
Haku in dragon mode gets attacked by a bunch of paper figures flying around in the sky. We don't know who or what is attacking him at this point. Sen climbs to Yubaba's rooms to help him, and with the aid of one of the paper figures, she gets in and discovers Yubaba's baby, who's been shut in with a threat of sickness if he ever leaves. He's kind of a mean baby. The paper figure turns into an apparition of Yubaba's twin sister, Zeniba, who transforms the baby into a mouse and the three bouncing heads into the baby. Uh, Zeniba's after Haku, who she claims has taken the magic uh, that she has in the form of a golden seal. <laughs> Not the kind that swims around in I the ocean. I told you this was batshit. This is, this is more batshit than any other Miyazaki I mean, film. just hearing the whole this. plot out loud is just so funny. <laughs> I told you. Keep, keep going. Okay. So Haku disposes of Zaniba's apparition, but he's dying from a million cuts. Sen feeds him some of the river spirit's medicine, and he yaks up the gold seal. Sen smashes this slug that has surrounded the seal. That turns out to be a spell that Yubaba was using to control Haku. Of course. So Sen decides to return the seal to Zaniba on Haku's behalf. Mm -hmm. Kamaji gives Sen some train tickets, because there's a train, uh, but he tells her it's a one-way ride. Before she does that ride, she feeds No-Face the rest of the medicine, and he vomits himself back into a normal size and disposition. As one does. Sen takes the train to Zaniba's with her new friend No-Face and the mouse baby. Mm -hmm. We're in the home stretch now. Yubaba learns that her baby is with Zaniba, and also that all of No-Face's gold was fake. Haku bargains for Sen and her parents' freedom, contingent on Sen passing one final test. Sen gets to Zaniba, who reveals that Sen's love broke the spell of the seal. Holy shit. She also tells Sen that Yubaba has been controlling Haku, but that Sen can free him and her parents using what she remembers of them. Haku shows up and takes Sen back to the bathhouse, and on the way... Sen remembers almost drowning in a river when she was younger and puts the pieces together that that river was actually Haku, which turns out to be correct. Haku is the Kohaku River, which Sen notes was turned into apartment complexes, which Haku speculates is why he couldn't remember where he came from. So he's freed of Yubaba's spell, and now he knows who he is. Sen delivers Yubaba's baby. Yubaba tests Sen by making her choose her parents from the pigs. Sen is not outsmarted, guesses her parents aren't among the contestants. She's released from her bad contract, and she gets to walk away from the spirit realm without looking back. And that is the end of the film. Wow. Thank you. Good job, Kevin. If that was Good a job, little long, I, I apologize. Um, I wanted to be thorough. The thing that's so amazing is... So sometimes people will be like, bro, it's just a movie, man. Why are you thinking so deeply about it? Just shut up and ignore it. That's my like stoner criticism voice, by the way. Sure. Um, and so sometimes people will say that this – I love this because this film, and especially the way that you just gave that synopsis, Kevin, lends itself to such thematic unpacking. Because especially for a Western audience that might not be as – um, just like implicitly familiar with some of the elements of animism and kind of like Shinto illusions and things like that. But all of those things are there. And then the the economic criticisms like with consumerism and then the idea of like the frustrations because of Japan's own economic crises from right. the lost decade from the 80s onwards. And this film was made in 2000. So, you know, think they hadn't quite figured out their quantitative easing programming program yet which you know they're still dealing with that now but but nevertheless mm -hmm. they hadn't quite gotten things under control after the great asset 
price collapse of the 80s and 90s. And so it's so interesting that this film lends itself to a deeper, rigorous, philosophical and thematic analysis. And I love it because we can do that with every film. But this film just seems to be like so like it's beckoning us. It's asking us, like, just think about me and 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 engage with me at a deeper level. That's why I think his films are so amazing. And this one maybe in particular. Well, and and but it, the the best part about because I agree with you, but it also works totally on its own merits as right. like a fairy, as a kid t- film. fantastic fairy tale, you yes. know, which is kind of, you can kind of go into like Wizard of Oz like that too, where you know there's what it's about the price of gold in the early 1800s or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you know there is like a p- political uh, message there, but any child who grew up watching that movie, do you think, they don't fucking know that. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's just exactly. about munchkins and witches and stuff and flying mm-hmm. munchkins and monkeys. the cool and, yellow brick road, right? <laughs> yeah, so, and and. and, and Another movie that I'd like to add into there with the whole Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, you know, woman gets thrust into a fantastical world is uh, uh, I I think this one is most closely um, similar to Labyrinth because that's kind of the same thing, too. And it's kind of like like when you watch Labyrinth, it's like you feel like this is just a day in the life of this wild, magical universe that Mm -hmm. you're seeing through the lens of Jennifer Gardner or whatever. Uh, uh, And. And same thing here, like like you're like this world exists without uh, uh, sin, you know. And then we're just seeing it, and it's unfolding, and it's insane. But we're seeing it through her eyes, and and there's just yeah, it feels like it's just another day in the life of this weird ass world. Absolutely, I, I, it's a hard thing to accomplish. I feel like. So I totally get what you're saying about this being a day in the life of the spirit world. A lot of this, like for example, when the sludge spirit, when the the sludgy you know what turns out to be the river spirit shows up yes it's it's not it's not like a uh uh it feels like this is just business. This is a bad day at the office. But it's not like, oh, my God, here's this, like, movie-changing uh, big problem that needs to get solved. It's just, it's just like, a, a, a workplace problem. Yes. You know? And it's presented, like you said, yeah, uh, uh, when, when it gets clean and then the face just rises up out of the goop, it's like, sure. Yeah. That's a f- big face now and then hmm. becomes a dragon at some point yep. or am I getting that mixed up Either no you're way, right it's just kind of yeah it's a very it's presented very much like just matter of fact and then when you think about it and especially when you read it in the recap you're like what in the hell is going on <laughs> well it's so lovely because it's it's kind of you know Miyazaki loves nature he loves nature he yeah. loves the imagination and and potential of children and even though he said he's not very religious himself, he says that the influence of Shinto over his work is very clear, very evident, because it's something that you just grow up with in uh, in Japanese culture. So he's kind of intentionally aware of his own religious, non-religious influences. And this idea of like this spirit dragon, this nature water dragon that has been suppressed, that is then released, is kind of this lovely idea of, of hey, let's not denigrate nature to the extent that we do and and that we're that we're so prone to do with our technologies and our culture and our industry and things like that and and he does he explores that throughout like all of his other films in different ways whether it's like industry and building up and destroying nature or whether it's humans trying to extract nature and extract wealth from nature or like in Castle in the Sky or something like that but um this one is more about like how greed and gold and finance and economics and things like that it kind of like paints over and doesn't allow us to really appreciate the freedom and the beauty and the wonder of 
of nature. And I think that there's something really lovely about that. I totally agree. Yeah. Me too. I, I think the, the greed and consumption angle, both in the way it relates to that uh, sort of environmental message and, and message about nature, and just in the way it re- relates to human nature and sort of the lessons that this movie is trying to teach are sort of the predominant themes for me. Mm. Can, can, can y'all think of any other filmmakers, like American filmmakers that film nature kind of like he does? Well, like, James the Cameron only... tried to do that with Avatar. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that's that. that's the I, idea. Is that there's Malick. this there's this mineral, yeah. uh, and there's this corporation that's greedy, and they don't have a respect for nature. But then there are these like indigenous peoples, and they're the ones who actually they respect and they they love, and they're in like more of a harmonious relationship with nature. James Cameron, I think that film's trying to do something similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Would you say Terrence Malick fits the the? I, I'm really talking more mainly about the. The fil- the actual f- filming of of nature, you know, oh, and right. just how it looks, you know, oh, like yeah. like I can't think of any other American filmmaker that cares as much and fi- and takes as much care in filming it uh, as as he does. But Maybe yeah, yeah I mean well, yeah, you're right. Reason, that it's you know, Malik all the was doing a PhD in philosophy on the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, who's like really interested in nature and he's very skeptical of technology. And he uh, was really interested in poetry. So when you watch Malick films, it's all about trying to use film as a poetic medium for attuning our attention to nature. So that makes to, total sense because he to has varying that rich degrees of success, you know, attention. Yeah. yeah. So you see this overconsumption metaphor get picked up like through all all this imagery in the film, right? Like, did you guys pick up that scene in the boiler room? The boiler itself is just essentially like a massive hog right, that yes. gets fed and in turn like powers this whole machine that, that's going on up above. Oh, yeah. So, you know what? I didn't even notice that. That's really interesting. And what's, get, yeah. what's getting fed into the hog? Coal. Oh, shit. Again, Natural the great resources. sort of uh, energy source of industry, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was thinking about this movie, um, you know, both back when I thought about it uh, earlier and, and also when I rewatched it, um, I sort of thought about it on that surface level. And then I kind of recontextualized the whole thing um, in the political and economic uh, lens that uh, I think Austin mentioned earlier. So we should talk a little bit about that because uh, just in the very beginning of the movie when um, Chihiro's father mentions that amusement parks uh, being abandoned is sort of a, a symptom of the Japanese economic collapse, it the first time I saw the movie, it definitely like didn't register with me. But when I thought about it and did some research, um, it really seemed to open up a whole new layer of the film. Um, really, I guess after the war... And I do talk about this in The Earthling, so I apologize if I'm sort of repeating myself a little bit. But after the war, you had Japan shifting away from traditional values and getting more interested in capitalism and pursuing those capitalistic ideals. Um, So the amusement parks are really an embodiment of this. I mean, you build them when you're in boom times. They're totally something that thrives on discretionary income. Um, You only build them when times are good. And there's almost like a a little bit of a hubris attached to building one. Um, And uh, in this case, this amusement park is built in the style of traditional Japan. It's built uh, with sort of a faux historical vibe to it. Uh, In fact, when the the father first uh, 
notes uh, the age of the building, he looks at it and he says, oh, it's not old, it's fake. Hmm. So he's sort of pointing us to that. It's uh, like every town or, or, or whatever they call it at Disneyland where it was where it, like every ethnicity uh-huh. had its own little part of. Uh, right. And, they were, or, and they were gonna, it was like the community of the future, Walt Disney called it or something like that. Yeah, hmm. I mean, Disneyland does this, right? And And you guys probably know a little bit more about this and I'm just starting to read about uh, what Umberto Eco says about Disneyland and hyper reality and that stuff. Have you guys? No, have, I don't know. Have you guys seen that stuff, Austin? Have you ever heard of that? No, I no, I haven't. What does he say? Well, I'll butcher it, but he's basically talking about uh, the phenomenon of building these sort of fake towns that are intended to be more real than reality. Sure. Um, and it, I'm like a cartoonish reality, almost. Sort of, yeah. And, and this isn't just pure fantasy either. This is based on reality. There are these theme parks all around Japan that are abandoned. And they're all these, they're kind of like ghost amusement parks. They call them ha- Haikyo or Hakyo. I don't know how you'd say it. It's H-A-I-K-Y-O. But they're all over Japan. And, you know, they have like shrubbery and trees and things that have taken over. It's almost like nature is reclaiming culture in a way. It's really quite... <laughs> creepy but super interesting uh yeah. that, that these that these things are, are are still out there and that they're existent so i mean miyazaki is probably drawing some inspiration from those right and and if you go online i mean there's a lot of different photographs from these places and they are really they're spooky they're just they're sort of disturbing in a way but they're also like in a strange way sort of calming hmm. um uh, there's one called the nara dreamland that just it's like it just it's so bizarre to see like the earth reclaiming this stuff mm-hmm. and yeah. do, do, do you yeah. think Miyazaki's mainly commenting on just the the inherent excessive consumerism involved in that you don't think he hates Disneyland I don't think so although Disneyland is the one amusement park that did manage to survive I think it's in Tokyo um, Tokyo Disney that, yeah that one lived right um no I don't I don't think so I think that what he's commenting on is sort of forgetting your past yeah and and that theme sort of echoes throughout the film where we we hear all this importance on remembering who you are right remembering your name if chihiro forgets her name she becomes she loses her identity and i think that that is a metaphor for for what he saw happening in japan definitely Hmm. i mean there is something about hyper reality let's say like like the more real than real that is kind of that kind of detaches us from the physical world. And I, this is just one of my struggles in life because I'm really interested in postmodern criticisms. And then at the same time, I don't want to go like straight hippie and be like, we just need to get back to earth, man, and just like dig our hands in the soil. And that's the real of the real. Because even all of that stuff is still mediated by consciousness and language and culture. And so there's still like a fantasy that's attached to the supposed real connection with nature, right? But nevertheless, I've been really interested in this idea of of hyper-reality, of Disneyland and high-definition television and things like that that are even more real than what I'm able to experience in my, let's say, normal, natural faculties. And it's not that I'm trying to make a value judgment, that one is good and one is bad, but I think it's really interesting to explore the consequences of that tension or of that mishmash of technology with what we would call nature. And, I mean, Miyazaki clearly seems to favor the natural i would say do you think so 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, let's not forget, like Disneyland is hyper real because it's aimed at children, little babies that like like to see big hyper real cartoonish things. Fair enough. You know, it's like a. But yeah, in terms of other stuff, like the effect on adults of like virtual reality or some other kind of thing where we're we're not in nature at all. You know, I definitely think Miyazaki would not like that. You know, yeah, like like, like do you guys are you sports fans? Huge sports fan. Yep. Or okay. huge football like, fan. Do you really? have a high-def, badass TV that you watch, like, football on or basketball on or something? Yeah, I hate it, though. I hate the fucking it's f- a, high frame rate it's shit. It's a little weird, too weird, right? Yeah. It's fucking yeah, weird. Yeah, I feel like it, I'm it, right it, there and I don't like it. You know? <laughs> it's like, too much. I, I went and saw the Lord of the Rings thing on high, high frame rate, and I, like, every frame, I, I like... Barely look at it, you yeah. know. It was like it was like hard to look at. It like made me sick almost. It almost makes it feel like poorly filmed, even though it it's does. like as you clean feel like you're on set be. watching people in in Hobbit costumes. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like you're you're uh, swept up in it anyway. Yeah, that's what I thought. That that that's exactly my thing. Like when I watch a film, I'm I'm very good, even though I have a critical mind of just like suspending disbelief when I have to. Like if I'm watching very a film fragile. for Wisecrack, dude, I got my analyst hat on. But if not. I'm, dude, I, I will get lost in even the most mundane, like, rom-com, and I'll be bawling my eyes out. Like, it doesn't fucking matter, you know? But um, high-definition television snaps me out of my suspension of reality because I'm doing exactly what you just said, Ryan. I'm like, oh, that's a dude wearing prosthetics on his face, right? Yeah. And it's best I for know. sports. I, I, I like the immersion that you get, and it's because what is it? Like, like, we don't see in 4K or something. Like, 4K is too high for... For our our brain to process or something along those. No, lines it's it, it, it's giving you every detail. Where, but the weird thing is, is that film, uh, like we like how non-detailed it is. You your brain does right. weirdly. That's basically what it comes down to. I kind of feel the same way about music these days. Like w- the music now See, is like, it's so that. clean. But if you listen to like Led Zeppelin, it's like it's it's got like that veneer. It's almost like got like a layer of like tarnish and rust over it almost that like makes it feel more real. Yeah, there's a quality to lo-fi music that's cool, but I also, you know, I like I like a produced Diplo track as much as any man. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I shouldn't generalize. So here's like the, here's the total funny stuff. thing, right? Because there are going to be people that are listening who might be a little bit younger than us or more sensitive to this, and they'll be like, "This is like a bunch of dudes in their 30s fucking bemoaning," you know? Or I don't know if you guys are. All I'm in not 30s, bemoaning. But... I I like uh, the where we're at sure. i like hyper reality personally i don't think it's affecting <laughs> okay. me See, in any way it's so strange because for me i am very sensitive to this generational gap and i don't ever want to just be like okay the younger the new is bad so I, i'm i'm always tentative to like balance that line however when i listen to a vinyl record of some old jazz or billy holiday or something like that there is something that just gets me it makes my soul sing a little bit more than when i listen to the overproduced high def diplo track i don't know why yeah it's not the music itself like the songwriting that i'm necessarily talking about it's the it's the production style that i'm talking about but that said like there's a lot of like newer albums that i guess if i thought about it they are very clean i wonder if like a band like radiohead like is that are they even using the modern style or are they are they roughing it up a little bit to to? Oh yeah, there are people. Lo-fi is a trend. I feel uh-huh, like in sure. certain genres. Mm. But bringing it back to Spirited Away. Yeah, we might as well. <laughs> we might, since that's what this podcast is about. Uh, uh, it's interesting, you know. I feel like the, uh, this whole thing about 
old people basically not liking new stuff and technology uh, versus nature and stuff. Miyazaki, it's worth noting, Miyazaki has wanted to retire like the last nine movies or something crazy. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it is kind of, that's almost like a meta motif. Like he's kind of like, you know what? I think at any moment he's always just like, fuck this. What am I doing? You know, Wasn't he going to walk he, away he, after this one? Wasn't this supposed movie. to be the last one? Yeah. I mean, I think he's great with it. He loves his craft, but at the same time, he probably like walks around Japan, sees everyone just buried in their phones, you know, and is just like looks around at nature and no one gives a shit about it. And he's just like, you know what? Why am I making these fucking awesome cartoons for these people? <laughs> mm, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. But then there's also an aspect, and I, I think I read some articles about this, um, where he wanted to like pass the torch as well. Like there was an aspect where he's like, well, let's let the newer generation like take the helm, but also let's hope that they keep some of these traditional ideas or at least like the 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 feeling like the traditional feeling of it uh like you know preserving what's good about those things and not just hand-drawn uh, for, animation yeah, you're talking yeah, about yeah like the hand-drawn animation yeah. aspect of this film is something very classic and i mean miyazaki i obviously won't speak for him but i imagine that he saw room for like all sorts of different techniques i feel like he's just saying um there's you know something important about tradition that we shouldn't forget definitely mm -hmm. Yeah. Why exactly. why do you I'm wondering why do you guys think that Chihiro is immune to all this stuff? Is it really like the 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 child hero type of phenomenon or why is this? I don't think she's immune. I mean, she 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 struggles. She she almost she forgets her name and stuff like uh but she uh she learns the lessons at the but end. She is immune. It seems like she's immune to the consumption aspect of it. Like she can resist the buffet and she can she, she doesn't care the about the test at the end. She passes the test. She doesn't well, the, care about no faces gold. Passing the test, though, I feel like comes from all the lessons she learned. But you're right in terms of that. That's why I said at the beginning this movie's a little anti-parent because this movie begins with like you totally sympathize with her, and she is anti-consumerist from the beginning. She's not into the big buffet. Doesn't care about you know what her parents do. You know who all you know like. There's that line where the dad's like, "Don't worry, honey. Your dad's got all the credit cards and cash. You right. you know you'll need." And she's just like, "I don't care. I just I'm." I'm she's I'm sad about leaving my friends and family or friends in school, you know. So like she's into kids stuff, and and I don't think she gets the whole consumerist thing. She has she hasn't been soiled by you know tainted by fucking reality and stuff. So hmm. when she gets over there, and but then at the same time I say that she's she's like I want to work hard and be a good worker, get a job and work in the bathhouse for yeah. you, you know, and let me prove myself, you know. So yeah, she's not consumerist, but she's also like weirdly hard worker it's kind of cool like it could be uh, just self-preservation philosophy and theology for millennia have talked about the wisdom of children right like the bible talks about out of the mouth of babes and uh it's just something that has always kind of existed that there's a sense in which as you get older as you start to understand the world you divide it up more you imbue more meaning into things that maybe shouldn't be given such meaning and so you sort of lose your attachment and your connection to the simplicity of life you sort of become less natural or you become you become more concerned or um uh, what's the word like in buddhism you become you, you're, you become more attached to the material world and you lose your connection to the beyond and to the transcendent. And so there's something about like having a childlike vision or like uh, like reattuning yourselves to the simplicity of things that Miyazaki seems to really buy into because 
in most of his films, children are the wise ones. Sure. They're the ones yeah. who are the heroes. They're the ones who have the imagination. They're the ones who have the capacity. They're the ones who can see through the greed or the corruption or whatever. And they're always kind of like reminding us, hey, let's not be so consumed with these things that we think are the really real, but they're not the really real. Amen. Yeah. You know, there's one character that I guess maybe I just can't crack this character, but I want to talk just a little bit about the giant baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, what the fuck is up with the giant baby? <laughs> also a baby in Labyrinth. Keep going. Yeah, right. And and I mean, there's also, you know, Falcor in the Labyrinth. We got these uh, flying, yeah. you know, lion wow. dragons all over the place. But this baby. Well, that's, that's, that's never ending story, right? Oh, that's oh, a Oh, man, that's kind of the same thing, even Ooh. though it's a guy, not a girl. That's a thrust that's into a, a fantastical place. That's that's a cinematic fail on my part. Um, <laughs> so this baby, when when I first saw the baby, I was like, okay, that's really weird. When it started talking, I was like, this may be the creepiest baby I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes, it's so uh, it's so like sort of eloquent. It's very clear and 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 erudite almost. <laughs> Mm. Well, maybe not area. So, 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 what's your question about well, the giant baby? My question is, what is the significance of this baby? Because I, in some ways, it seems like the baby is going on its own sort of journey of self-discovery. Hmm. I, I think one motif for the baby is just you know, like, well, like you said, chil- ch- children have this inherent kind of wisdom that we don't know where you know until it gets taken away from them, but and, and until you become a selfish adult. But before you became become a wise child, you are a very selfish baby. <laughs> so I think that, you know, because you just don't know anything. So the giant size of it and just how it just anywhere it goes, it's just mayhem Makes and an carnage. Entrance. Yeah. So and that's a baby. You know, that's a motif for a baby. <laughs> Wherever it goes, it fucking drools and shits and yeah. does it, everywhere it goes. Yeah. You know, yeah, so. if babies were oversized like that, they would destroy the world. And they get everything they want. So (laughs) that's what it's all about, I think. Yeah, I guess a baby in a way, maybe I'm overthinking it, but a baby is really like just a consumption machine. Exactly. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Then until they get smart. Yeah. So by the end of the film, by the end of the film, I guess the baby has sort of done the same thing Chihiro's done in that it's now at the end of the film, it cares about Chihiro. It's saying like, you know, if you hurt Sen, I'm gonna cry, or hmm. maybe it, maybe the threat is even worse. But um, you know, it doesn't really have a lot of bullets in its gun. Let's face it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I just thought that that character was, and and that's when the movie seems to get even more crazy pants. Going back to what you said, when the giant baby is there, you're just like, what is going on here? Hmm. What is this? I'm a big fan of movies that have character like uh clear character arcs for babies like coming of age stories for babies <laughs> you like the movie babies day out <laughs> it's a great movie i haven't seen it is boss baby an example of this uh, look, who's well, talking. Really. Say what? look who's talking yeah exactly does the baby look who's talking change? is what i'm talking about yes the babies change they have entire like you know they learn stuff by the end they become little children they become in, toddlers I mean, in look who's talking I mean. that's what happens do you think yeah. that maybe these are three stages of human existence. Baby, which is just pure drive, consumption machine, but not like not greedy consumption machine in the self-conscious sense like the parents right. who are like, I got cash and credit cards and I'm just going to build amusement parks and fuck it. Um, but it's just kind of unformed. 
and then you've got the greed of the adult adulthood, and then you've got the childlike wonder and wisdom of youth that isn't quite yet corrupted, but that's also more mature than the unbounded baby. So you've got like these three phases of of humanity, and they're kind of like all thrust together and learning from each other. Yes, three phases okay. of humanity plus one giant puke monster dragon. Oh my God, <laughs> which is interesting because so puking. puking is purging the negativity from you. Right. right? Like when you're fucked up and you've been drinking too much, I don't know, peach snops, you got to get that poison out, man. Get that poison out, puke and rally so that you can go back to the bar and drink something real. By the way, people Story don't my shoot life. peach snops. It's disgusting. Um, oh my God. But yeah, you got to purge yourself so that you can get back to an equilibrium so you're healthy again. So all of these, the, they're these, these constant themes of purging the bad or purging the evil, and they're not just purging chemicals from your body, but they're also like purging the spiritual corruption from your huh. body so that you can better attune yourselves to the reality of what it means to be human, what it means to be uh, a being in the midst of nature or whatever. There's some interesting things going on there with all of these things, and I don't know, maybe that's... No. I mean, there is a ton of puking in this movie. Let's 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 state that at you know yep. all right. Like like it is for a kids movie. This is a gross ass movie. It is. Even I can't think of a grosser kids movie. The pig transformation scene is grotesque. Yeah, right? it really is. When when the pig gets slapped with the fly swatter and then they do a slow mo of the the father pig hitting the ground, it's just so absolutely grotesque. Yeah. Hmm. And then the the sludge and the puking. So is the sludge monster the river spirit uh, scene or story uh, arc and the no face arc, are they essentially teaching us the same lesson? Which lesson is that, you think? I mean, I guess it's just that, well, for the river spirit, I guess it's an afflicted creature that's feeling the effects of other people's irresponsibility and consumption. No face is itself a creature that, uh, you know, can't like help itself. Right. Uh, but I'm wondering if sort of the lesson is really just the same that, you know, too much is not a good thing. Yes, I think you're right. And I think it's couched in the thematic idea of animism, which is central to Shinto which means the way of the gods, right? Which is this idea that behind trees are tree spirits and behind water, we see the water in our human reflective conscious experience, but behind that, guiding that, maybe what's even more real or maybe not more real because then that makes a distinction, but that embedded within that or intertwined within that are spirits. And so when we aren't attuned to the spiritual realm of nature but we just simply dis we separate it and we just think of nature as as this thing that we can dominate that's when we can corrupt it and so that's why the the water dragon uh and that's why no face were corrupted and then they purge themselves or they're able to be purged of the corruption and then they're allowed to flourish in their more animistic duality which is both nature and spirit kind of together and i think that is what's what's being played with there well and and also the uh yeah a pretty much good summation of that but uh 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 the the difference between those two characters was no face you know he was corrupted but then he was he, he was almost using other people's greed to his advantage because it seems like he has unlimited funds and mm -hmm. he knows that whatever like these people do anything i want so he kind of has them you know by the balls so like and 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 then he 
uh, uh, gifts them by eating them you right. know, and stuff. Whereas the uh, the the dragon dude, um, Haku, uh, Haku, um, uh, you know, helps sin because she helped him you know i has more empathy oh you mean the river spirit the river spirit. well i guess yeah. they oh, both, yeah. they both sort of do yeah and yeah. and then that's it right is that's why she's able to like pass the test at the end is that she hasn't lost her way but she's stayed connected to that monism that that singular plane of the intertwining of the spirit with the nature and and so and it's a reciprocal right you help me i help you you know and it's not extractive it's not just one way but I guess I'm still a little confused about that. So what is the significance of her being able to understand? I mean, I the sur- the surface significance of her being able to realize her parents are not among the pigs in the pigsty is just, you know, because she remembers who they are. But is there supposed to be something deeper going on there? Mm, I don't know. I mean, because is it, um, is it, it Yababa? Is that her name? The, yeah. The, it, Yababa the puts her up to the test, right? Right. So Yababa is what's known as a yokai. It's again, my Japanese is terrible. It's Y O K I or A I. And yokai in Japanese folklore are malevolent, malevolent or mischievous spirits. And so that's kind of what she is. She is this testing mischievous spirit. And it's something that's very popular in Japanese folklore. So I think. As simple as it might seem, and, I, and there, I'm sure there's something deeper than this, and I'd actually, fuck, email us, tweet at us, let us know what, what if you know more about Japanese uh, culture or Shinto or Japanese folklore. But there's something in that, that, that that's her job, that she is a tester, and that's what her whole thing is about. Like, that's her role, because that's just something that life will give you, is there will be things that test you. There will be these spirits that are constantly trying to challenge you and see whether or not you are going to be ethical and whether or not you're going to be able to pass the test. And I think at one level, it might just be that simple. And I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but there's something to that. Yeah, I think it's as simple as as she remembers who Mm -hmm. she is and who her parents is. And yeah, I mean that's that's a big theme that that weaves throughout, and and even you know Haku as well. Um, yeah, sure. I think I think you're probably right about that. All right, guys. Well, I think we've uh, we've discussed the film a lot. I think it's a good time to get into the mailbag. All right, take let's a couple do it. questions. What do we What do we got? Um, all right, so I got one here from Corey who says, "Dude, dude, dude." Dude, <laughs> did you know that Idiocracy is the prequel to Wally? Think about it. Now, I got to say, I literally had about five people hit me up on Twitter and say the same exact thing. And I had never, ever, ever thought of that before. Well, for one, one of them is animated. Uh, it seems well, like that should give it away. It's the prequel. It mixed... seems like it should give it away that it's not. <laughs> they mix genres a little bit. It's, you know, it's... Genres? You Medium. mean visual, <laughs> a completely different mediums? I think they mean thematically, guys. Come on here. Hey, I, uh, okay. I guess. But okay, so there's Idiocracy, which is what? How many years into the future? 500 years? Uh, Something like that, right? So it's like 500 years into That's the like saying Idiocracy is the sequel to The Pet Rock. <laughs> well, potentially, and then and then and then Wally is the uh, third part of the trilogy. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, Wait, what I get was what the first part saying. of the trilogy? The pet, I'm just saying that. Oh, the Pet Rock the was number not one. Not even a movie is all I'm saying. <laughs> or it's a different medium altogether. A plate of spaghetti, then idiocracy, <laughs> then yeah. Wally. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I get what they're saying, right? Is that, oh, that yeah. Wally is kind of a dystopian tale as well? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not about like. I mean, I don't remember were the were the people like idiots in Wally or were they just kind yeah. of like fat and lazy? They were just like, let's like I, I I let's order stuff on my on my big chair, mm-hmm. you know, and we're all fat and they don't care about it anything right. but just eating and consuming and stuff and they've never played like through a football or anything. Yeah. I really like Wally. I know some people shit on Wally, but I think Wally's fantastic. I love well, Wally. Wally's cool, dude. Love yeah. that movie. Okay. Um next one is from I don't know who this is from. Oh, Travis. Okay. Uh, So Travis says, Hey guys, so in your discussion of idiocracy, you wondered if this would be offensive to middle America. Having spent my whole life farming and raising beef in middle America, I think I can qualify, or I think I can answer this. So the beginning of the film has the most offensive part, but it really isn't all that bad. The depiction of stupidity is more of a white trash stereotype, and the majority of people in middle America are as far removed from that as you. The beginning of the film also pokes fun at the stuffy intellectual couple, as well as spelling as well as something for being more interested in prolonging erection. Oh, science, uh, for being more interested in prolonging erection. So even the beginning is kind of balanced. After that, the film is centered in a very urban environment, which again doesn't really play into an offensive look at middle America. Other part of the film that really plays into making fun of us is the use of the word fag. Maybe wrongly, I think that the overuse of fag can be applied to inner cities or Boston as well as more rural stereotypes. So again, not strictly making fun of middle America. In conclusion, I wasn't offended, but not much offends me other than vegetarians. Thanks for a great show. <laughs> Regards, <Okay>. Travis. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, what do you think about that? Because we did talk about that, whether it was offensive and, you know. Well, I mean, uh, uh, what do I think about what part of that? Just the, the vegetarians response. part. Like, does, that make, does that clarify? Because we did talk about that, whether or not it would be offensive to middle America types. Well, as someone from Tennessee, no, I thought, like, like what Mike Judge does so well um and why everyone I feel like he's universally loved in America is because even when he's making fun of middle America or dumb hicks, he's do- he he does it in a human way that's smart that like any even the even the hicks would be like, all right, I get it, you know. I feel <laughs> like 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 the, because you can do it in a mean way and you can do it in a not mean way, you know. And 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 like Talladega Nights is a perfect example. That movie is butchering is just like an attack on the south yet people from the south fucking love that movie you know and yeah yeah i mean i do i i i laugh hysterically i know people that are like all those characters you know and it is kind of one of those things that's like like it's so true it's funny but like you know we're not everyone's like that obviously but it's funny so same thing with mike judge you know fucking king of the hill think about that like everyone in texas loves the shit out of king of the hill you know um most people I know, at least, knows people that are like the the characters. So I think that idiocracy, yeah, he's punching down at these people, but I think that it's it's so true, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I don't mind. I mean, the 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 fag thing, yeah, I agree with that. Like like times have changed. It's offensive still. Let's not do it. Mm. Whatever. Oh, I had one more where the from the Matrix Revolutions. Basically, we had asked. We kind of had a, like, this guy agrees with us that Matrix Revolutions was a movie that swung for the fences. Oh, this is, uh, uh, 
Jacob. He's, uh, Matrix Revolution swung for the fences and should be applauded in their effort to blow people's minds philosophically, but it does, it's a film that does not work at all. Uh, but to answer our questions of what are some other sci-fi films that try to tackle huge philosophical questions but do it in a way that works filmically, he said 2000, he's, he said 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is, I feel like, a pretty... You know, classic answer to that so. question. Uh, he says, I wish they could have studied 2001 and asked themselves how they could, how the Wachowskis could take all those boring ass speeches, edit them down to a few crucial concepts, and then show us the rest with some breathtaking cinematography. Clearly, this is a much different film than 2001, but I honestly think they could have found a way to introduce some more cinematic visual ways of getting their point across like they did in the first movie. The best philosophical films often have pretty minimal dialogue, and they tend to convey most of what they want to say with the camera in a much more captivating and thought-provoking way. Anyways, those are my thoughts. Thanks a lot, Jacob. And I basically pretty much 100% agree with you. I mean, although I would say that it's a miracle that 2001 works filmically with such sparse dialogue and the way it's filmed because i mean i don't no one else could have made that movie i mean that's just a singular auteur yep. experience and i wouldn't even say like the first time four times i saw that movie when i was a kid i wouldn't even say i, I would i didn't like it because it's so slow it's so you know i would say it worked filmically then then when i fucking went to film school it's like oh man i get what he's doing you know <laughs> then it's like it's working for me now but yeah it what, the best part about the matrix to me is that it's it, it's so philosophical so deep yet so accessible and entertaining and and clear and and entertaining the whole way and has a drive that 2001 does not have at all you know it's a slog in some at respects uh but yeah they need, the only other movie that does that is the matrix I can't think of another one, you know. I mean, Terminator Two, maybe, but even that, it's like not as deep as the Matrix. Right. All right. So thanks a lot. And uh, where can we find everybody on the internet? Um, my name is Ryan Haley. You can find me on YouTube on, at Ryan Shorts. That's a, a, I release weekly short films every week. I'm releasing one about my Burning Man experience. I made a music video about Burning Man, and I, that's going to come out probably at the end of this week. So hope you dig that. Love Ryan Shorts. Yeah. Huge and, uh, fan. Austin, what about you, man? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. You can check that shit out. I love you all. And he'll he'll argue with you for free on Twitter. Well, not right? for free. <laughs> uh, you have to give me love or buy me a beer if I'm ever in your <laughs> What's your Twitter handle again? Yeah. <laughs> right it's on. at Austin what? Austin underscore Hayden. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sweet. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. Where can we find you on the internet, Kevin? You got to write me a letter. <laughs> yeah, I'm not on the internet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not. All right, everybody. Well, then, goodbye from Hollywood, California. Laters. <laughs>